Welcome to this episode of Better Product Launch, where we're sitting down with a founder to give you an inside look into their new product launch. So today we're talking to Todd Olson, CEO and founder of Pendo. Pendo helps companies drive software adoption, leading to happier customers and more productive employees. Pendo customers include the world's leading software companies and digital enterprises, including Verizon, LabCorp, OpenTable, Coupa, Okta, Salesforce, and Zendesk. Founded by product people in 2013 in the heart of Raleigh, North Carolina, Pendo is backed by Battery Ventures, Spark Capital, Meritech Capital, and Sapphire Ventures. Through its product craft community, sponsored events, and podcasts, Pendo aims to support the success of product people everywhere. Todd, could you tell us a little bit about the book and what inspired it? So the book, the inspiration came uh, through my experience here at Pendo. So Pendo's uh, founded the company about seven years ago. And in the course of building the business and working with customers, I found um, a growing set of challenges and really an evolution in the way companies think about product. And that evolution has gone from product being a part of the overall customer experience. So this is the thing we sell and we have other aspects of the customer experience around it to becoming more central to the overall customer experience. So I was seeing more and more use cases and realizing there wasn't really a book to help guide companies through this transition. And when I was thinking about what I wanted to write about and what I was inspired by, you know, we, we looked at things like analytics and how product managers use analytics. And we looked at other things and, and I felt like this whole notion of product that was a more comprehensive story that yet to be told. And, you know, I think anytime someone writes a book, you want something that is a bit unique. Everyone's read plenty of books about product management. You can read about, you know, what the role is, blah, 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 and what various prioritization schemes. I didn't want to just write another one of those. I think there's already great ones out there. I don't want to be duplicative. So I think this story just hasn't been told yet. So that's kind of the inspiration. I haven't yet had a chance to to read it. Uh, I hope to soon, uh, depending on when Amazon ships it. Should be should be soon. But what struck me about it is obviously seems to be based off of the the product led growth trend, you know, PLG, of course. And it seems that the natural progression from from even that trend is then I think people asking, okay, how do I apply this to my organization itself? But before we get into that, I'd love to hear your definition of what product-led growth is. Absolutely. And, and that's a great call out that this is really an evolution of product-led growth. And look, product-led growth is more traditionally common, I guess, in B2C-oriented businesses. And we, we think about some of these businesses where the product itself drives conversion and drives virality. And you think about those two that separate too. So typical product-led growth companies, there's always some sort of free trial event, that free trial event gets customers in and gets them seeing value to a point where then they can convert in product all in a human free motion. And then what we also see very typical in PLG companies is this notion of virality. And, and I guess this is a B2B example, but, but one of the most common B2B examples are things like Zoom. You getting invited to a Zoom call is product-led growth. You know, so if you're not a customer, but someone else is a customer and you get invited in, you get exposed to this thing and you're like, wow, this is pretty cool. So the product itself drove the growth, hence product-led growth. So like those are probably the two most 
common motions I see. The Zoom ones come just a modern take two of like old school email marketing companies. You got an email and you read the email on the very, very bottom. It said, this email was sent by constant contact or whatever it is. Like, you know, like, oh, what is this constant contact thing? And maybe I should be using it to send my emails. And you click on it and boom, product like growth. Um, so I think like that's kind of the, the origin of those sorts of concepts. Yeah. And I think even going back to the 90s, the whole Hotmail link at the, the bottom and then Dropbox free space, and I think we had seen that, but I don't think anybody thought about PLG. What I feel like has changed in the last few years is you, you mentioned B2C. Now B2B SaaS companies are starting to realize that this isn't just a consumer side thing that we can do. But then a lot of times they're like, okay, but I'm in a niche you know, industry. How do I apply PLG when we're not on a consumer side? So I love to hear your take on that because... You know, Pendo kind of is the backbone of a lot of PLG initiatives for, for these SaaS companies themselves because you go, you plug into these other products and you provide analytics. So how do you sort of make that through Pendo or just from your mindset from, okay, this isn't just for a consumer side anymore. You can apply PLG pretty much to any domain in the software, you know, digital product world. Yeah. And look, honestly, the examples I gave are a spectrum of kind of the more extreme versions of PLG, but great thing is these techniques, you could do everything from that to something, even some combo of PLG plus, plus human. One of the examples that I like to give, and this is field me because you asked specifically around how data can inform PLG is, you know, if you're in um, a B2B product where you have some sort of trial, which, which I think having a trial is kind of quarter product-led growth, hence try the product. One, analytics can help inform the, the product-led growth conversion. And a great example is just if you've got data on what people are doing inside your trial and you call that customer, this is blending the two and say, hey, I noticed you tried this feature. How did it work for you? You know, what kind of value did it get? That's a way to have product-led bits improve your human sales-led motion, right? So that's kind of a baby step. If you continue that baby step, there's ways in which in the product itself, you can start using things like in-app messaging. And that's the sort of technology that Pendo also provides. So instead of having that human come in, you can have a, the product say, hey, you just sent your first email. How did it work? Would you like to unlock these capabilities and upgrade right now? That's, that's another way to do product-led growth within a trial, right? But but those are things that are becoming, you know, honestly more and more common in, in B2B companies. And you're seeing companies with bifurcated or split go-to-market models where maybe you have um, one segment of your business, which is more SMB focused, more viral nature, and you have one more large enterprise. And maybe the SMB segment, you're, you as a business are trying to find ways to pull humans out to drive, you know, decreased customer acquisition costs, and, you know, which ultimately results in more efficiencies, right? So, so that's kind of how I see some of these things kind of play together. And I gave kind of a, a diverse set of examples, but, but yeah, and I can certainly give more, but that's kind of how I see it. I think it's really interesting that you, you call out kind of some companies like bifurcating product leg growth is really, we're really focused on that on the SMB, but when it comes to enterprise where, you know, we have a sales team that that's always, we have sales reps, account managers. So I'm curious, like, what are some of the implications that you see product led affecting companies like organizational structures? Oh, look, I, I think generally speaking, that, and I think this is a 
positive thing of a, people telling me inside Penda that I'm just the eternal optimist. So I think probably everything's positive. So uh, um, is it creates this opportunity for more cross-functional teams. What is a product-led growth team? Well, it's a really a combo of sales, marketing, engineering, product management, design. I love cross-functional teams. I think they're kind of cool. I mean, I'm not a big, people that know me also know I don't like org charts. You know, I, I, I uh, although I apparently do need them once you get a cert, above a certain size. So I've learned that also the hard way but I generally don't like them. And product-led growth breaks down org charts. It creates these cross-functional teams. And, and like, and, and, and growth is one area. There's also this notion of product-led customer success, you know, which is, okay, I want to like automate onboarding. And very often people have human-led onboarding via professional services or a customer success team. But, but I'm seeing an emerging discipline where you have hybrid cross-functional teams comprised of PS, CS, product, engineering, design, automating the onboarding process, which is really cool as well. So I think when you think about organization, you start thinking about how do I have cross-functional teams where they leverage the product to help these functions perform these functions in a more efficient, better way. I hadn't actually thought about the the idea that a PLG sort of breaks organizational charts, even though I hadn't heard it that way because we've we've talked to people that talk about cross-functional teams and we've talked about um, on the podcast, like when you're building PLG inside of a group, you like get somebody from marketing, you get somebody from product, you get an engineer. It's almost like you like get everybody to spend some of their time on the PLG team before you like mature it. But, but saying it in the, in that way from the organizational standpoint is interesting, but I want to hit on the facet of onboarding before diving a little more into the organizational side, because you, you mentioned it. We think it's, extremely important. And even looking at the journey from really sales led organizations where it's like, contact me for a demo, then it's like, you know, click here to try a demo. And then it's like, now it's like click to start using as that shifted. It's almost like the onboarding becomes even more important. So I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Onboarding is arguably one of the most critical pieces of the entire customer lifecycle. And yes, the interesting thing about onboarding is that depending on your motion, it could be pre-conversion, which means it's really important to product-led growth. I'd say critical to product-led growth or it's post-conversion. And it's really more, then, then it switches and goes from like the, the growth to retention. And, and look, we all know in SaaS business, retention is just as important, not even more important than acquisition. So it, it is a critical thing. It's the first impression. And look, I mean, all of us as consumers have had good onboarding experiences and less than good onboarding experiences. I mean, how many times I, I was just sitting up, I'm not going to like call any product out for having a less than good onboarding. I don't think that's fair publicly, but I was using a product and like, I got to get bounced around, like in the app, I do this and I typed my password and then my password's wrong three times. And I get kicked some confirmation email. I'm going back between this device, my phone, my holy sh- Oh, oh, wow. It was like, I, w- I was just, I almost lost it. Holy so, wow. Yeah. Holy wow. That's. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I think those are things that if I haven't yet bought the thing that I'm just doing, I'm immediately, once it takes more time than I expected, I will probably take my time and put it elsewhere. And that's really what it comes down to. You're competing with people's time. And, and I think that's that's critically important. I think in the B2B world, onboarding's um, also important because our studies show that people that onboard more successfully lead to higher net promoter scores, 
And that's an early indicator of retention. And the last thing you want to do is acquire a customer and spend money on it to then, you know, a year later, lose that customer. It's, it's actually worse, you know, because, you know, you're, it really affects your lifetime value. So, yeah, I think onboarding is critically important. I was just about to ask you, maybe in that example, like almost like role play to say, I'm the founder of the, the app you're describing. And you tell me that as a onboard is really important. And I would say, yeah, we'll definitely get to that down the road. Right now, we're just focused on getting an MVP out, but hopefully we'll do that later. So I'm curious, how do you handle such an objection? Because that's, that's a very common thing uh, for tech companies, especially in the, the earlier you know, parts of their, of their life cycle. Yeah, and what they're probably going to do then is they'll probably do a human-led onboarding if they have a few enough customers where they can afford to put a human on it. Now, we all know this is a scale. The other factor is that onboarding is a multi-headed beast, for lack of a better metaphor. Do not come up with a better metaphor than that. But for B2B products especially, because you could have different roles, like how you onboard an administrator may be very different than how you onboard just a basic user. The feature set actually may be different. You also have this, this interesting example in B2B where you can onboard a customer that's a brand new from scratch customer. That's, there's a, often a lot of setup in that. But what if Nine months later, new employee starts the company and they come into this product for the first time. That's a new user at an existing customer. Completely different problem. The problems are literally different. And the biggest challenge I see with companies is that they treat all these things as a single problem, onboarding, and they don't think of it this way. So and back, going back to your startup one, yes, what I see for startups that don't invest in product-led onboarding, they'll, they'll do a human-led onboarding and they'll cover this new customer case they won't cover this new user at an existing customer case. Because guess what? The new user just gets hired. The product person, like the company hardly even knows about it. You know, and this is, we're not thinking about this at big companies, especially people are changing jobs every nine to 12 months. You're going to have new users of your product that you have not yet met. So onboarding never ends. It just continues to happen, you know, and I think this is where people, they fall down. And, you know, the challenge is in, you know, in the SaaS world or any sort of B2B world, in two years, your champions change over multiple times and you need to have ways to onboard new champions. And if you lose sight of that, sentiment will go down and you, you, you create a lot of risk. It's interesting, the idea that onboarding never ends because it's, it's not only, you know, we think about onboarding, we think it's like, oh, it's that walkthrough, it gets you into the product. Maybe it talks a little, oh, there's a little tutorial there, but the idea that you are consistently and constantly onboarding new people, you're, you're recycling, you said recycling your champions, you've got new customers, you've, they've got new coworkers, they're bringing other people in. How do you continue to kind of optimize that? You, you talked about how we can be hu- very human intervention oriented, but that doesn't scale well. So thinking from a product like growth perspective, how are you consistently and constantly like watching that onboarding process, making sure that it's going well, that you're keeping up with people, that you're keeping up with how your customers are changing? Well, the metrics are so, so key, right? So we, we yeah, I, I kind of cited in my last answer that we have data that shows um, that, you know, the MPS score is an example for people that come in after uh, two weeks of an initial subscription have typically a 10 point a lower MPS score than people come in the first two weeks. So, um, and then we're constantly iterating and tweaking it. So it's, it's an area that we work with customers on it. We do it ourselves in our own business, but we're looking at MPS scores. We're looking at usage of certain key features. Like the way I look at products is like every product has like a handful of aha moments or core events or sort of critical activities that that are frankly the reason these products exist. 
you know, it's, it's a handful of things. And um, you can measure which percentage of your users have adopted those, have tried them. And you can also measure the time it takes for the users to get to that for the very first time, as we call it time to first use. And you can start working on optimizing time to first use for your, your, your kind of key areas or aha moments, whatever you like to call them. And, and I'm a big believer in like trying to optimize those numbers. You know, I, you know, I've used the example before on Dropbox who, and you, you saw Dropbox, you know, their aha moment was save one file to one device. And they got you to save one file to one device the very first time to do it. The time to first use was minutes. But I find often that B2B products have time to first use of a week something you know uh, and that's unacceptable and you know in some of these products it's it's more sophisticated than one aha moment you have five maybe the first one you get fast but then then you like get lazy on the next four and that's where you get susceptible i don't know if there's anything to this if it gets too specific because you i actually don't know that i've heard of the well if i have it just went out my brain that the sort of time to first use in b2b you know quite a lot that that makes a lot of sense i i also struggle sometimes we're talking to some of our clients to work around plg for products that have a a longer time to value and i i know that a lot of the writing and a lot of the people talking about plg are like you got to show value immediately but sometimes in in these like highly analytical or data oriented solutions or like really niche industries think like um we work with clients in like, you know, the biomedical space or things like that. Sometimes it really just takes a while for the value to be shown. It's not like Strava where you can just like go on a run and instantly see analytics. Sometimes it's like you need weeks to plug in data. Sometimes there's some onboarding there. So the first use might be, you know, within hours, but value might take three, four weeks to actually show. Does that, do you ever run into that or, or, or see that in your work with PLG? Yeah, of course, of course, that's classic, right? And and you know we're, we're actually working pretty hard on, on on trying to help measure and help companies measure this as well. Like the way we've started characterizing it is there's there's first use. First use is really a measure of exposure. I was exposed to this thing, and that may or may not lead to an aha moment. Yeah, I think I used Dropbox. You know, you know, um, as an example, you know, the, the Facebook one was with seven friends or ten friends in the first seven days of this effect. So. So, um, so that had a bit of a time component. The Facebook one, unlike the Dropbox one, had some time component. But yeah, I mean, if you're in a BB app, it could take months. If you're running a clinical trial, I mean, it's not going to happen in like a day. You know, you'll you'll take time. So the other thing we're looking at measuring is what we're calling um, meaningful use, which is the level in which you consider usage of something necessary to get full value out of it. Because there's like touching it once, and then there's using it meaningfully. And one thing we're working on measuring with our customers is how do you narrow that gap? First of what is the gap? So if you can get someone exposed to something fast, so time to first use is quick, how much time does it take to get that user then to a place where you feel like they're using it meaningfully, meaningfully being in a, in a way that leads to stickiness and, and you know, full value realization of that capability. So, you know, I, I think that's a really, really wise and nuanced view. I mean, you know, just touching something once, certainly in the B2B world, is not sufficient to declare victory. Do you think there are there are some sort of principles? And, and so let's say that you look and you've got this data and you say, I, I want to bring down our time to meaningful use. Are there things that you've seen that you that you recommend? Are there ways, are there calls to action that that you take as a, as a product manager to, to fix that? Yeah, look, I, I think in general, if you know something's going to take some time, 
but you want to keep people engaged. What, what you don't want to do is just be out of sight, out of mind. You know, hey, user, come back in six months and we'll tell you how this is. They're not going to come back in six months unless you proactively get them back. But even so, how, is that really what you want? No, it's not what you want. You want to have bite-sized chunks. You want some nibble. So like that, that from a product design perspective, you got to think about what, what you know, taking a bite out of a big apple, you want your nibble each way. Is it weekly, daily, maybe too much, but send the user a status update. Tell them what you, like presumably they're, they're partnering or they're, I, I always go back to jobs to be done frameworks. They're hiring your product to do a job for you and you're doing a job and, and you, you just told me it's a long job, it's a hard job. We're doing this hard job for you, Mr. User, Mrs. User. It's going to take us three, six months. We're going to give you weekly updates and all the great work we're doing and what we've learned. So then finding ways to give the user a little bit of feedback, like this is the work we did for you this week. I had a chance to listen to Dan Ariely speak, predictably rational, Duke professor, wickedly smart individual. And, and he was talking about product design for Kayak and how in the early days of Kayak, it was kind of... Yeah, slow when you like search for something and people were just bouncing out. They're like, yeah, I, don't, I don't need this experience. But then they started listing out like searching this, searching that, searching. So like, it's like, and then as the user like, why this thing's doing hard work for me? Because I would have been like doing all this stuff manually. And like that, that psychological um, reinforcement kept users engaged enough to wait for the results. So it's those product design techniques you need to do to keep people engaged, keep yourself in the forefront. I want to stay on that, but I also, there's no good segue to getting back to the the organization that I really want to touch on a little bit in this. So I kind of, I don't know, Anna, if you have anything on that topic to follow up, otherwise we're just, just going to detour. We're just pulling off the interstate really fast and it's like the world's biggest ball of yarn. Let's just go see it. And the yarn that we're going to unspool I don't know if you do that with yarn, is the organization itself. And one one topic that Anna and I talk about to kind of start with is, I actually wrote an article not long ago, like product-led transformation, where, because there's digital transformation that like large companies are going through. And I thought about, you know, a lot of times we talk to start like tech companies that have been around for five plus years, it's almost, it's not just product-led growth, but it's then how do they transform? So Ann and I can walk in and say, here's all the principles of product-led growth. Here's how you run your product. But a lot of times you're like, how do I actually start, you know, shifting and start doing that? Um, it's one thing if you've, if you're on Pinterest, you know, growth team and that's your job and they have full on teams. But I think a lot of companies are trying to understand, okay, I understand the principles of it. I, on, onboarding is important, things like that. Where do I start when it comes to starting to transform my organization? So I'd love to maybe start with a harder case of how do you advise companies that haven't been doing this, but, but need to start doing this with existing resources. This is our ball of yarn diversion, right? So, you know, the, the freeway. So I love that. Love that. Just quick aside, there is the world's largest frying pan, just an hour down the street. You know, great diversion, by the way, folks are in North Carolina. So I highly recommend that. Oh, so like South of Raleigh? South of Raleigh on the way to the beach. Very large frying pan. The, the more fried chicken has been fried in that than any other thing. So. Oh, so it's actually used? Yeah. Oh. Okay, that, that like really ups the interest level for me. A lot of times they make these giant things that are not used. Oh, it's used. It's used. So, um, so anyway, um, after that aside, look, I, I, I think you're completely correct. You know, most companies, most companies, I would say, have, are in a state of transformation. And, and so this can seem overwhelming. So I, I think it depends on... Um, 
what goals you're trying to enact for your business and where you feel like you have the most pain. I, I think a lot of people, because of the, the history of product-led, will try to start with growth and they'll try to understand things like how can we support, for example, a, a free trial um, or even um, you know a handheld trial is another baby step to some notion of product-led. But I, I think the other thing that I look at which I think is a bit of a, maybe a hack in becoming more product-led is looking at the opposite, looking at support. Nearly every company has some sort of notion of support. They have some call center, they have some sort of help at xyz.com. Why are people contacting support? What are the common areas? How can we implement more self-service? How can we have the product deflect some of these confusing areas um, that's driving people to to call us. And I think that's actually an interesting place to start. It means a product manager, you can sit with the support team, you can shadow them. I, I always recommend that as an activity, fun activity, sit with support. It's humbling, it can be stressful, but it's definitely eye-opening. But then those are great areas for, for being a more product-led organization. Again, less, less growth-focused, more support, you know, efficiency, saving money, focus, again, less growth. But I think it's an easy area. And nearly everyone has this problem that, that I've spoken with. Um, and, and look, we all can agree that when we're using something, anything, if we get to a point where we're frustrated enough to call a human to get help, like that's not good. Like that's not good product design that leads to a bad experience. And if the product can reduce that, it's win-win. Win for everyone. So I think that's where, you know, one place that I often recommend um, people start is kind of looking there. That's a great, I, it's one of the, well, as a former designer, that's like one of the most anxiety producing recommendations. Cause sometimes you just like to design and just hope everybody loves everything exactly how you designed it. But you're right. Talking to customer support forces you to have to, to, to see the, the impact of your decisions. I think it's a great place to start. Now, from an organizational standpoint, um, and I don't know exactly what you cover in the book. I'm excited to read it, but I'm curious, you know, in, in the book, do you cover anything around, you know, how you start to, to, to create these organizations and in, in tech companies? Yeah, absolutely. So we cover a variety of um, those use cases. We talk about how to create more product-led support. And I think the other thing we cover in the book too, which again is a bit unique and novel, is this notion of um, product operations as a role. So I'm not sure if it's something that you know, either of you talk about or have you know, seen a bunch in the companies you've worked with, but it's really an emerging role within product teams that kind of offloads and centralizes a lot of the areas to provide feedback, work cross-functionally, our, our product op team manages things like our release process. We manage things like, we do manage our onboarding process through that team. They, they do in-user, you know, in-app education. So that team centralizes a lot of that so that it provides a really, really coherent, good experience. So they'll work across the various product managers um, to make sure that happens. And then it's powerful because very often, you know, product management it's one of these roles that it's one of the most heterogeneous roles in a company. You know, it's partially internal, partially external. It's a lot of things. If I can free that role up to focus just in those key areas and not add more things like managing release process or beta processes or collaborating with support or even sales and CS to manage lists of feature requests, et cetera, like it's, it, it ultimately drives greater efficiencies in the organization. So we, we I, I do talk quite a bit about that. 
Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I think we've heard about that. I don't know if Brian uh, Cross from, from Pendo um, talked about this. I feel like he was the one who, who talked about it. I think ops in general, seeing DevOps, design ops, it, it seems like this, this layer of efficiency that exists outside these orgs that, that makes a lot of sense. Something I'm really interested in is, so with, when you're doing product-led growth, it's all about measuring. Like we've talked about, it's being very quantitative with your customers, seeing where they're hitting certain milestones. How long is this taking? And, and in general, we've seen product management become a more quantitative function overall, being much more data literate, being able to kind of work with, with, with larger data sets and, and understanding things quantitatively. So do you think that these trends are moving together or do you think that one is kind of influencing the other? Absolutely. They're, they're all related. Yeah. Product management has, has grown a lot as a discipline and, and, and even in the book, actually, the, the, the first section of this whole product led movement and organization is becoming more data driven and quantitative. So, so yeah, I think it's kind of foundational. Like if you don't have any data, what's going on in your product, probably not going to become product led anytime soon. So like, 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 like start with there. Now I also in the book talk a lot about, okay, well don't just measure things for the sake of measuring things. Like that, we thought we all know about vanity measures. I, I, we encounter all those, those suck, but like have a goal in mind, you know, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to drive growth? Are you trying to drive efficiencies? Is conversion the number? Is it competitive win loss? Is it reducing support tickets? Is it um, increasing your net promoter score? Like, we all have different KPIs that we're focused on at any one, any, any one time and they change, they evolve, they grow. You know, like what Pendo cared about when we were a startup is definitely not what we care about now. Therefore, our KPIs change, our metrics change, how we think about our metrics change. Um, and that's part of how we've kind of driven our product-led focus. Because when we see certain things in our business, it's like, yeah, we should probably improve that. <laughs> it's like, we could probably do this in the product, but it's all driven by metrics. And that's how we frankly prove that it works. You know, and, and honestly, not everything does work. That's the other big thing, you know, and I talk about this in the book and, and, and maybe I don't emphasize it enough, but, but I often find that people have this fear of failure and they don't try things. And that is just losing sight of the overall opportunity to learn. If you don't try something, if everything you do succeeds, you're not pushing hard enough. Like you gotta be pushing and things have to be failing for you to know that you're doing as much as you can to improve your business as, as much as possible. So, so yeah, absolutely. I think they're, they're absolutely part and partial combined. I kind of just want to end by asking about the book, give your pitch for it. As I understand books are like really long blogs. So I don't, for people who are like, what is that? And I'm looking at a picture, it's bound, it's got a hard cover. You also have a digital version, but I'm curious, what type of book is it? Is this a like a cover to cover book? Is it a book for product leaders only? Um, is it for non-product people? Is it something that you know people should have and share with other people in the organization? What's the, what's the sort of mission behind the book and, and, and what's your, your hope for people that, that buy it? This is a, put on your smoking jackets, you know, drink a glass of whiskey sort of book. So um, <laughs> well, a, now I want to know like, how many glasses of whiskey it long is the book? Cause like, <laughs> um, look, I, I think this is meant to, I think it reflects my personality, the book, you know, I think that's the best way to put it. Now, none of you know who I am. So that's not a very helpful description, but I'm pretty practical. You know, I don't like a lot of just fluffy words. No disrespect to people who do like fluffy words, but that's not me. I'm an engineer. So there is a combination of introducing ideas, introducing examples, some storytelling from my past and from customers, 
combined with like practical suggestions and insights. Like when we talk about onboarding, we talk about these are different tools you can use to improve onboarding. And these are some of the pros and cons of them, like very specific, right? So it, it's kind of a combination of, yes, an executive could read it, but also practitioners could read it and pull something out of it. I mean, freemium is an example. I have a whole chapter on freemium. And why? Because you could be trying to do like 12 different things with freemium. And they're all interesting and unique. And what the book tries to do is expose the reader to all the different ways you may be thinking about freemium. Because like, I think too often we have very shallow ideas of what these things can mean, but I, I try to be more comprehensive. So, so that's kind of like what the book's like. I hope people will drink whiskey. Are there pictures? Um, there are some, there are illustrations, there are you, charts, okay, graphs. Yeah, there's some pictures. At least from what I can tell, because I want to convey your personality, which I think people can get a little bit from the podcast, that it seems like you're using a pink on the book that matches the logo, which also, because people can't see you, seems to match the the paint behind you on the, on the wall. So th- there's something there too, I think. Look, the pink, uh, which, which I, I chose that as a color for the company early on because I wanted to have... I knew we we're going to be more of a B2B brand, but I want to have a little fun, like a little flair, like a little edge, you know, and pink's fun. Nothing's, nothing says edgy like pink. Exactly. <laughs> so I think one thing that I took away from what he said was talking about how PLG really breaks down org charts. So what were your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think it was a, it's like, as he described it, I feel like it's things he wasn't saying anything we hadn't heard before, but I, I, it's funny how like you can hear something just said slightly different way and it just changes. So I'm just reacting to it now. And I'm sure this will stick with me as, as I talk to more uh, startups in the space. But I think that what he's really talking about is, is how these domains that exist for, for sort of uh, products and then the sort of, it's very cross-functional. And we've seen that a lot. We, um, I think we talked about it quite, you know, quite a bit with Pinterest on, on the, on the podcast. And even when she came back to sort of talk about growth design, there's a lot of cross-functional aspects to it. And what's kind of in, in that, especially with larger companies that have to establish org charts, as he mentioned, I think every startup was like, oh, we're going to be flat and have no org chart. Like eventually you need something, unless I guess you're, you're Zappos. But eventually you have these org charts, but to really carve something out of product, it has to be cross-functional, which is, I think, the biggest strength of product-led growth. It starts to, even though it says product-led, it actually doesn't mean product like product manager led. It really just means the product itself that everybody is building and testing and designing is leading it. And so as a result, anybody who's like a part of that now has to sort of like create something cross-functional. I think that's what he means by breaking down the org charts is it, it starts to pull elements out of all these different areas together to start focusing on different aspects of the product itself. Yeah, I think it is. it can be really challenging for organizations to think about how product-led growth fits into because the decision to, you know, it, it touches everything from like the, the landing website to the login experience. And where in the past, we've had like really clear silos on kind of who owns what. It's now almost like you're creating a customer journey funnel that goes from your marketing material into your product. And so then who who's that team that decides what that looks like and how that should function? I think one thing that would be really interesting to see, I mean, we, we know that Pinterest has these, you know, they have growth teams and they're organized very specifically, but I'm, I'm curious if companies are going to kind of, are they going to reorg specifically around growth teams or is it more of a like, 
ad hoc pop-up type teams that kind of come together, do something and then split back apart. So I mean, I'm kind of curious, nerdily, organizationally, like how this will affect how companies just even kind of situate themselves. Yeah, well, he did sort of hint at what that might look like as it matures when he mentioned uh, product ops, which I feel product operations or product ops are short. I I feel, I can't remember, I'd have to go look, but I feel like somebody brought that up on the show before, but I, I really liked the way he described that team. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense too, especially as obviously design ops and, and, and DevOps, like DevOps, they have a very specific stack and then design ops are now going to have to also need a really specific stack and the product team will as well, especially, you know, if you are a quantitatively led or organized product team, you have to understand how are we getting this information and what are we doing with it? So I think as our, you know, as our software needs to become more complicated, it only makes sense that ops teams would pop up around that. Segwaying and speaking of complicated software, the the other part that he sort of shined a light on was the, these concepts of of time to first use and, and meaningful use, because that's a question that you and I get a lot from tech companies a lot. And I'll be honest, sometimes I struggle to even answer that. I even I, as I asked him, it's like I, I don't know how to describe that. But but um, it seems like that sort of framework of even just thinking about, you know, time to use, which I feel like is like the the main thing people talk about. Um, and then meaningful use that seemed a little bit richer of, of a description for how to think about PLG for a lot of software companies. I like that a lot too. Cause I do, I do think it's breaking. Like, I think we've all heard about that. Like on Facebook, they wanted you to get to seven friends because they knew if you got to seven friends, you would stick around and you would stay longer, but there's no, I think that it, like breaking this down has more nuance. It's the, it's, it gets you how, how fast can we get people to the first time usage? And from that first time, how do we get them to that meaningful interaction? And I, the way that I kind of understood him talking about that, that meaningful engagement is like the person is experiencing like the key benefit of the product or they're doing the thing. If I were to use Airtable, it would maybe for Airtable, it's like I have now created my own. Airtable. I use their existing ones and maybe I've like built an Airtable off an existing base and I have customized it in a certain, I've customized, you know, five columns or something like that. I like that breakdown because we want to, I think a lot of product like growth is really just focused on onboarding and getting people to the product and getting it to the functionality. But then to say, okay, well then how long does it take to get you from that first kind of like interaction to where we know you are finding the value we want you to find? I love the example of Airtable. We use it a lot, but I, I think that that actually also brings up another issue that, that comes up with, with software companies is that even if you use it for the first time and you use it in a meaningful way, you might have done the thing that you needed to do. So he, he was touching on that where like your, your frequency of use is probably not necessarily you know, daily. And I think that's where a lot of criticism and pushbacks come from, from some of the, you know, you brought up Facebook was like, do you really need to push everybody to use your app daily? And the reality is you don't, especially in, in B2B SaaS. But I like the way he talked about it. He talked about, you know, giving uh, nibbles or small updates uh, in between. And I really liked it probably because we're an agency ourselves and we, we also do this of you, know, you hiring somebody to do something and it's going to take a long time. You give updates on the things that you're doing. So I thought that that was, it's pretty tactical advice, but I actually think it's so broad and generic and broadly applicable that I, I hope people picked up on that part too, that, you know, in the Airtable example, maybe you do everything you need to do. You're, you know, setting up your, your resource database and then you set it up and then now you connect it to Zapier and it's ready to go. So 
Airtable has other ways to sort of engage you in between, you know, with, with, with content and things like that. So I think that that was a really helpful um, example that he gave as well, these, these nibbles that you can give in between uh, usage. Thanks for listening to the show this week. If you're looking for more resources on how to design, build, market, and sell better products, then head over to betterproduct.community to join, well, the community. And as always, we're curious, what does better product mean to you? Shoot us an email at podcasts at innovatemap.com.